Small business financial services are only 1% finished. Our latest research examines the jobs to be done and cultural insights on what U.S. business owners need and the digital services that will help them meet their goals. Download the research for free by heading to bit.ly forward slash digital SMB. That's B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash D-I-G-I-T-A-L-S-M-B, all lowercase. From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. This week we bring you a roundup of the pandemic-related and financial aid stories on both sides of the pond, SoFi and Samsung Pay team up for a debit card, and are monkey vandalizers in ATM proving more than ever that cash is not safe? All this and much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 427 of Fintech Insider. I'm Sarah Kachansky, and today I'm joined by my colleague and co-host Adam Davis. How are you doing today, Adam? Uh, I'm good, thank you, Sarah, in this uh, Zoom-infested Groundhog Day, uh, but it's uh, going well. <laughs> yes, Zoom-infested feels about right. I was reading an article earlier about how to cope with Zoom fatigue. Um, it's, it's a real condition. I think we're all developed it at this point. Yeah, I think so. Um, and as it's becoming normal now, we're joined remotely, of course, by some awesome guests, uh, all making their FinTech Insider news debuts. Uh, first up, we have Sarah Castellano, EMEA Head of Payments and Digital Product at JP Morgan. How are you today, Sarah? I'm well, and I'm excited to be on the FinTech Insider podcast. I'm an avid listener. Oh, we are excited to have you, so thank you very much. Um, we're also joined by Oliver Baxter, Head of Brand, Communications and Product at By Miles. How are you today, Oliver? I'm good, thanks, Sarah. How are you? I am I am well. It is, um, it's nearly Friday. I, I can't believe it's only Thursday. I can tell you that much. It feels like it's been one of those weeks. I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> I just think it's no no I just think it's I've lost all sense of time now like at this point it could be could have been 10 days it could have been four I've no idea um and last but by absolutely no means least we have Hannah Dawson CEO and founder of Futurely how are you today Hannah I'm I'm marvelous I perhaps I'm better than you Sarah I'm not sure <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, let's see how we get on shall we um all right. Well, welcome to the show. Thank you so much to you all for joining us. Uh, let's get started. There are so many small stories about the pandemic and knock-on effect on financial services this week, we thought we'd kick off with a handy roundup. So we're going to start with an article that came from Business Insider, which said that four new fintech lenders in the UK have been accredited under the Coronavirus Business Interruption Loan Scheme to support SMBs affected by the coronavirus pandemic. They are Assets Capital, Atom Bank, Ebury, and Flexmise. The announcement brings the total number of C-bills lenders to over 60, with more than 80% of SMBs now having a financial relationship with at least one of the accredited lenders. We also have a story from City AM, which um, is that Starling Bank and Funding Circle have teamed up to provide £300 million in loans to small firms. And that's also under the Coronavirus Business Interruption Loan Scheme, also known as C-Bills. I don't think either of those are easier to say, but there we go. Same loan scheme. Um, Starling will lend through Funding Circle alongside other institutional investors, granting access to funding for more than 4,000 small businesses across the UK. However... A story from Yahoo Finance is not quite so rosy. Just 10% of emergency coronavirus loans for businesses have reached the front lines in the two months since the government announced them, new figures show. 
So 32.7 billion of the promised 330 billion pounds has been delivered in the eight weeks since the Chancellor first announced state aid. So that's 15 billion through the loan schemes and another 17.7 billion through a completely separate scheme. Uh, It's a corporate finance scheme run by the Bank of England. Uh, Part of the delay in the UK here was down to the amount of associated paperwork for C-bills. So the government only guaranteed 80% of the loans, and that meant that full credit checks were still required. The bounce-back scheme, on the other hand, which we covered last week, has already overtaken C-bill in terms of uh, loans issued after only a week of operation. So £8.3 billion worth of bounce-back loans have been extended to almost 270,000 small businesses. In the US, in contrast, a similar state-backed loan program lent $350 billion to businesses in just 13 days. So, in summary, <laughs> new lenders on C-bills, a lot of new lenders on C-bills, partnerships to lend on C-bills, not quite sure the money is actually still getting to the people who need it. Uh, who wants to go first? Adam? It's the, uh, it's the, the weekly roundup of, uh, of, of COVID-19 related news. I mean, it's... Uh... I think, um, I mean, I was on the show a couple of weeks ago and we were talking about the introduction of B-bills. Um, B-bills? B-bills, the, the bank's ba- the bounce-back bounce scheme. Back, yeah. um, sorry, <laughs> I've not I've, heard it called that. I sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm slanging it already. This is just how much it's featured in my in my lingo over the last two weeks. Um, I think it's uh, uh, it's good to see that that scheme in particular doing well. Um, I think if you if you tot up, I guess the average amount that's that's um, being lent under that scheme, it's around thirty grand. If you tot up the amount for C bills, it goes right up to one seventy. So if you're looking at, um, I guess, where the differentiation is and why, uh, I suppose the, the the B bills, if you like, has been relatively successful. Um, it's a lower amount, which has mean of, meant obviously a, less from a credit check perspective. Obviously, the, it's less onerous process, um, and I think it's. Uh, but it is good to see that so much has been lent under that scheme in particular um, to companies that, frankly, really really need it. Well, to be honest with you, I mean, it, it is it is smaller amounts, but also it's one hundred percent government backed. So the banks and the issuers actually have less incentive to need to do a full credit check if the government's going to do one hundred percent backing on it. I suppose, um, Hannah, did you want to jump in there? Yeah, I think, you know, we've we've been monitoring the C-bill side of things for uh, our business. We're providing forecasts, et cetera. So, um, you know, we've been trying to help as many small businesses go through that application process as possible. I think one of the big things that none of, you know, I hadn't really appreciated until we started going through the process is, of course, with a, with a new initiative such as C-bills and with also things like the Indian call centres and, and a lot of the, the workers for the banks not being here and them just not existing who would normally process these um, underwriting uh, processes, you know, they've had to come up with new processes internally to actually deal with this demand. So with the bounce back loans coming in and taking away at least that up to 50k um, funding, you know, benchmark, and then C-bills being 50k plus, it's really given them some breathing space to start seeing things moving, which it does seem to be happening now. Um, it does massively depend on the provider though, which is, you know, shouldn't happen, frankly, you know, and some of the big high street banks are, you know, doing it much, much better than the others are. It's great to see that, you know, we're up to 60 um, lenders now. I think it started at 40 and then we had a couple dropped out and then working back in again. But, um, you know, the the turnaround rates for the bounce backs have been brilliant. So at least we're getting some cash in people's, in, in people's hands. But even they, you know, some of them are talking about hours and some are days and days and days for, you know, for them to come through. So it's the inconsistencies, I think, which are just the frustrating side of all of this. 
Yeah, I saw this morning on Twitter the um, the Starlink. Someone was well, a lot of people are praising Starlink Bank for how quickly they're able to process uh, the decisions. Someone said that their uh, the the time from application to money hitting their account was something like seven minutes, which is thing. pretty yeah, astounding. It's <laughs> and yeah, then every yeah. a, a bunch of other people reporting that they're the sort of the high street banks are taking well a lot longer than that, even to explain to them how to uh, whether they whether they can yeah. actually apply and how to do it. I think that's an important thing as well is that some of the digital lenders are, are doing pre-approvals. So they will, if you log on to your app, I, I don't know if Starling does it, but I know that some of them are, if you log in, it says, did you know you're eligible? Um, and then, you know, instantly you just hit a button. And, um, in, you know, in terms of application process, that's, that makes life a lot easier. But also I think in terms of kind of um, reassurance, because, you know, as a small business owner sitting there and going, well, I don't know what I'm eligible for. Where do I go? How do I speak to my bank? My bank's had me on hold for two days. Like, I don't even know if I need to be looking at my bank or going somewhere else because my bank will turn me down. Just kind of, I think some of the things that those digital lenders do um, around the process. So not just processing the application and getting the money there, but sort of the, the other support services they the offer. Handholding. Yeah, for sure. But, but and equally, if you go to some of the bank's websites, you'll see, oh yeah, just supply, you know, a six month cash flow forecast and it's nonsense that's absolutely nonsense they need to give much more detail to actually secure the funding you know there's the personal guarantees up to 250k you know it's a much more scary you know um, area to navigate and um, it, you know it sometimes feels as if the banks don't want to give them away it's really a strange thing well again that goes back to the fact that if it's 100% guaranteed they'll throw it yeah, at exactly. you so. you know, <laughs> <take the> sorry <laughs> Sarah, did you want to jump in there? Yeah, of course. I think, Hannah, you make a great point. The banks also have their individuals and their staff trying to work from home and adapt to the new model. I do see, though, this whole um, process as a great use case for open banking. If we had open banking in the UK 10 years ago or even five years ago and there were more rails established to essentially connect into the different banks, I could really see how this could have been a lot better, especially since if you think about from verification to your point, Hannah, around having all, all the cash flow forecasts and providing all that detail, identi- identity verification is such a key pillar of open banking, and then all the way right into the to the payment. I think that would really have helped more SME choice even in, in the end end process. It's, it's, the, it's the explanation, isn't it? Because it's the fear factor of, you know, if I do this, you know, f- fair enough, I need the money to fund myself. But also it's the affordability side of things. You know, it's all very well having interest repayments and so on and so forth. But if you factor in VAT deferment, time to pay with their PAY in it, you know, NICs, then, you know, the, the C-bills or their bounce backs due to be paid suddenly, you know, you need to be making sure that you're trading okay this time next year, or you're going to be in a, a ton of mess. Um, and 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 unfortunately, you know, we're trying to help accountants to advise the small businesses as well as doing small businesses directly with all of this. But you know, they really have to evidence taking all of the other the the government initiatives that are um, in place, such as this fur- furlough scheme. All of those things have to be evidenced for Siebel's before you know they're going to go. Yeah, that's fine because you've proven that you've got this affordability. I think it's also the transparency. Um, you know, wh- what am I signing up for? What do I need to provide? And yeah, how am I going to pay for this in future? Because I know a couple of uh, owners of very, very small businesses. They do not have finance teams. They barely have accountants. And they're trying to deal with, you know, people that have lost people that have lost their income and that they furloughed and then trying to get their head around what this means for their company is just make it as easy as possible. 
You know, I almost do think that this is um, so. One of the statistics I think in Sarah, and what you you ran through was that eighty percent now of businesses um, have got one of their, I suppose, primary banks um, approved by the scheme, which I think is um, is perhaps well, certainly not where we were maybe a couple of weeks ago. And it might have been that there was a lot of SMBs going to let's say the high street banks who don't actually bank with those, and therefore had to onboard. I think Starling said they've onboarded two thousand businesses. I think in the last even in the last week or so. Um, but but I think like that eighty percent number I think is really important because in theory, if you're going to a, a high street bank or an incumbent bank who might not have the slickest um, credit check process or the slickest process to release funds, then at least you're known. So a lot of the upfront paperwork in theory is done. And to your point, Sarah, that means that you can do things like you know pre-approvals and things like that. So that eighty percent is a good number, and in theory, you know, across the next month, you'd hope that would get higher and higher still. I'd want to just um just to move us on a little bit or to look at the um other side of the point I made. Um we we talked there about how things are getting better and we have got a certain amount of money across and 80% of people can now businesses can now have their primary bank has access to this. But what do we think about the fact that in the US they managed to issue 350 billion dollars worth of loan in just 2 weeks. Now aside from the fact that there's a major difference in the size of the loans. So if you were eligible in the US you could borrow like up to 20 million. I think there was some um, scrutiny over the fact that some of the really large businesses like Shake Shack borrowed $10 million from this small business fund. And there was another business, which I don't know, um, which borrowed 20, $20 million, and it was a, a similar sort of size chain. Um, aside from the size of the loans, is there is there something we've missed the Americans are doing differently? I mean, I, there's loads of, loads of possible answers to this. But um, Hannah, do you want to go first on that? Um, but isn't it isn't it comparing apples and pears? Because their economic development bank can do direct lending. And ours um, can't. And we used to have one, and then we didn't. You know, something along those lines. But I think that there's, you know, there is a there there is a, a part of it, and also um, anything that's covering payroll, isn't it? It's just being completely written off that they don't have to pay that back. So they're, I don't know. I, I think it's the some some something to do with with that, as far as I'm aware. Don't know, does anybody else want to comment on that? Or Sarah, can you comment on that? Actually, are you? I, I I cover Europe, Middle East, and Africa, so I can't really comment yeah. on the U.S. <laughs> bit. I, I think I, it's the construct, yeah, the, of this direct lending piece that it's government-backed direct lending. It's not, and they don't actually have to go through the process of doing the eighty percent coverage, et cetera, et cetera. So that this this process has been much much quicker over there because of that. Mm-hmm. But I do think that the banks here in the UK are, are more inept to APIs and absolutely being able to do things in a more digital forward way than you necessarily would see in in the U.S. is still trying to catch up to open banking and things like we have faster payments, which has been in the U.K. for decades. The U.S. has just launched it the last couple of years. I would be interested to see, I haven't done the digging on this, shame on me, I'm the analyst, um, on how much of that has come through the big banks and how much of that has come through the likes of PayPal and QuickBooks. Because, you know, we talk about, you know, Starling and Atom Bank being on that list, and that's great. But the number of customers they have compared to the number of customers QuickBook and PayPal have, and they, of course, are able as well to pre-authorize loans because they have all that data on their businesses. I would love to see a breakdown of, of who the money's come through. Because again, to Sarah's point, QuickBooks and PayPal are set up to get that process the application. They either pre-approve anyway, so they don't have to process it, and then push the money out incredibly quickly. So they can actually get through a hell of a lot more, a hell of a lot quicker. Um, I was just, it's just an interesting thought. I don't, I don't know the answer. Yeah. Not, not, not wanting to be cynical, um, but a couple of weeks ago, we did cover... Adam, the, the, cynical, you... Well, 
No, I'm not too bad, um, but I will be for a second. Um, I think the US banks are earning, uh, I won't say astronomical, but they are earning fees uh, on on pushing out these loans. Um, we covered it a couple of weeks ago, and you have to therefore uh, look at the incentives that they're getting from actually, um, you know, sort of up in their loan book for all accounts. So you've got a, um, I think that there's sort of regional differences as well in terms of the way that the the construct's set up. Um, you've obviously got you know potential incentives for banks to actually loan the money over and above just sort of uh, you know receiving interest in X amount of years time once the you know what once interest rates might rise. So I think there's there's different incentives, different mechanisms in terms of the ways that the two um the two schemes are, have been rolled out i'd be intrigued to see how quickly because if you're if you're the bank the, the business bank account that you have if they don't actually are not approved to give the loans and you you can go am i correct in thinking that you can go to some of the uh, high street banks and you can get the loan from them even if you're a non-customer but given the experiences that i have of trying to set up a business bank account with a high street bank and the amount of time that takes i'd be very intrigued to see the sort of onboarding process for the loan itself and how quick that was, that maybe that's why Starling Bank are benefiting from uh, quite a lot of additional customers joining them because the yeah. onboarding is that much thicker. I think that has to have a, a huge impact as well because a lot of the larger banks were saying they would only lend to people who were existing com- customers because they actually couldn't process any new applications. They didn't have the, the manpower or the, the per- person power, if you like, um, to do it. Um, just whilst we were on the US, I just wanted to move on to, to, to one more story here, which is linked to coronavirus. And then we can talk about something else, I promise. Um, so this is that um, states including Rhode Island, Illinois, Kansas, and New York are turning to Amazon Web Services and Google to handle an unprecedented rise in unemployment employment claims, uh, which have been triggered by the pandemic. Uh, More than 30 million Americans have filed for unemployment benefits since mid-March. Big tech companies are helping uh, these these state departments install virtual call centers with the use of cloud software services and AI to help them process claims faster. So uh, Google is using its cloud technology to upgrade the Illinois state agency's website capacities and automate claim filling processes. Um, it also has uh, it's established chatbots to answer routine questions and, and relieve some of the pressure on support staff. Um, it's interesting as well that this article, we got this from the Wall Street Journal, points out this isn't new per se. Uh, Massachusetts has been doing this for three years with AWS and they don't, they don't understand what all the fuss is about because they haven't had any problems at all processing unemployment claims. I don't know if there's some kind of state like one-up machine going on there. I don't, I don't understand the interstate politics. Um, but I guess, you know, is it, is it kind of, is this the beginning of the movement towards sort of what we think of traditional legacy or archaic institutions starting to adopt these technologies? You know, obviously cloud has been around for ages, but now we're starting to see state departments adopt it. Is this, is this the start of a bigger wave? Um, and then perhaps maybe how does that translate to financial services organizations, which are also notably laggard? Or is it one step before Google just runs us all? I mean, uh, yep, oh, that's a perfectly uh, reasonable other suggestion as well. Yep, <laughs> before Google owns us. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I mean, Apple has every single piece of information about me. I'm sure they do. Like, well, you know, just take the lot. I think this is a great thing because new technologies like cloud-based services obviously help the scalability, but security, in in my view, is still a key point here, and I see this as as something for a blockchain. Like really, if you want to do this right, you could use blockchain as a solution here. At JP Morgan, we are leveraging our blockchain today, Interbank Information Network, to exchange information in more secure ways. And if you think about the sensitivity around personal data and the protection of what is happening throughout this process, 
I would love to see blockchain really play a key role in in this this process because it has the right attributes to secure exchange between the different states, but yet um, keep it secure and then hopefully in in the long run process things more standard. Obviously, security has has always been one of the biggest concerns, particularly, I mean, the area I know most about is large banks um, and insurers, and they sort of say, oh, well, it's not secure to go to the cloud. They literally want their servers in a room that they can lock and go and check on because, you know, that makes things more secure, obviously. I like the. Uh, I, I do. I do think this is, and we've been saying it for for a while since since COVID really started. The enforced move to digital, and therefore the way that uh, I suppose large institutions and, and governments are, are probably the um, the most guilty of this have 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 to be are forced into changing the way that they do things, the way that they store data, the time that they need to interact with customers and respond to customers in, with queries, etc. Um, we know from the people that we've spoken to across the past um, few weeks, certainly from an FS perspective that um you know actually i think uh, uh, a lot of the teams that we've spoken to uh, a lot of the managers are getting more out of their teams now in remote just because the force shift to use let's say open source technology and moving on to the cloud uh, even in small chunks has sort of upped the efficiency in the uh, of their teams like tenfold which is amazing um so i think there's uh, th- there's definitely an argument to say that um, you know, six months down the line, a year down the line, whenever we're allowed back, um, I think there'll be some significant uh, strategic decisions being made in all these organisations around. Well, that kind of wasn't so bad. Um, you know, let's uh, let, let's see what we can do actually to you know build on it. I think on the people perspective as well, there's like a lot of traditional departments. I know this is kind of going slightly off piece, but like sales departments, for instance, where you would see a sales floor, and no, they all have to be together to be competitive, and da da da, and actually. Is that the case? Is it really? I mean, we haven't experienced that at all, you know, and a lot of, you know, having that time to think and process for anybody has been really interesting. So I think, you know, that the forced remote working is going to be a really interesting thing that comes out of all of this in the years time. I've also seen the rise of um, e-signatures and the need for actual physical documents that a lot of our clients from a wholesale level, corporates and financial institutions around the world are used to providing and we've had a program to try to digitalize signatures globally for a couple of years now. And it's actually started to change behavior, which is great because you can remove actual paper from the wider ecosystem. And I'm hoping those practices stay as we, we, we come back into a, a new norm. Yeah, I mean, getting rid of paper, if, if this, you know, if one good thing comes out of this horrible state of affairs, if we can get rid of paper processes in financial services organizations, you know, I for one will be ecstatic. Um, Oliver, did you want to comment before we move on? Uh, well, there was, I, I, I'm sure everyone's seen that uh, that meme that's doing the rounds, uh, what led the digital transformation in your company, A, B, C, uh, COVID-19. And I think that's people are forced to uh, forced to adapt in this situation. The only other thing I wanted to say on the point of you know Apple, Google, and Amazon owning all of our data in public services. I don't know if everyone saw the news a couple of days ago that the owner of Lidl, uh, Schwartz Group, are actually or Schwartz Group are moving. They're they're trying to build a competitor to AWS. So little are entering the game for cloud computing. So wow. soon it'll, it'll be well, uh, very yeah. reasonable. It'll be really it'll be very, cheap and basic. E- yeah. Very exactly, and and all sorts of random add-on services in the middle aisle. Well, Google and Amazon went after Lidl's department, right? Google and Amazon will send you food, so why not? <laughs> um, all right, I'm going to move us on. We can stop. Well, 
let's try and stop talking about COVID, but you know, I don't know if that's possible at the moment. Um, the next story is that Samsung Pay has teamed up with SoFi to launch a debit card. So Samsung plans to partner with FinTech SoFi on an innovative debit card accompanied by a cash management account. The card is set to debut this summer. Uh, for Samsung, launching a debit card could be a tool that extends its reach to more customers in the US as it continues trying to maintain its strong positioning in the mobile wallet space. Samsung Pay has fewer users than Apple Pay in the US, but around the same as Google Pay. So last year, Samsung Pay counted an estimated 10.8 million users versus Apple Pay's 30.3 million users. Um, should point out there that that's in the US. I mean, obviously, Samsung Pay has a much wider reach outside of the US, particularly um, in Asia. Um, despite the uh, usage in the US being less widespread, it does boast extremely strong engagement. Um, so Samsung Pay's wallet sees on average 36% more monthly engagement than its peers. Um, Business Insider reckons that's down to a combination of its wide acceptance network. Um, so it has you, you can use it for MST, so magnetic stripe transactions, which you can't for many of the other mobile wallets. Um, it also gives you lots and lots of nice rewards, which we know everybody likes. Um, and uh, the Business Insider points out that adding a debit card as well as digital money management tools and tying it to those offerings could push customers to use Samsung Pay even more regularly. So a couple of questions there. Um, one, what do we think about mobile wallets launching physical cards? Um, and two, you know, does it matter if Samsung Pay has fewer users if they use it a lot more? Who wants to jump in first there? Uh, I can take it from the, from the back. Um does it matter if they uh, if they have less users if they use it more? Um, it, that massively depends. Uh, the economics for it, uh, the, the majority of certainly in the states, the majority of income from from these will, will come from interchange. So in theory, you're looking at um, you know if if usage goes up on a month by month basis, um, that's probably the key metric. You know, I think in the UK. Uh, I think usage is sort of anywhere between, I think it's like 20 and 40% for those who are actually signed up to their bank um, who make, let's say, circa 20, 25 payments, debit payments a month. And I think the uh, uh, the interchange angle is the most important. So it just, it kind of, it kind of depends. The one thing I would say is that um, obviously to onboard new customers for Samsung, have, if you've got the actual, uh, if you've got the phone and therefore to get, I'm assuming the accompanying debit card with it, is probably actually extremely low cost. It's completely digital servicing, et cetera. So actually your cost base isn't going to rise exponentially if somebody actually signs up to this service. So just playing the economics, it's probably a bit of both, but uh, engagement is key with a company of that size with that many users. I love how this article coins mobile wallet wars because I think it's so true. It's like if you don't have a wallet, how are you competing? Um, I do think optionality is critical. So you see it's down to what the consumer feels more comfortable transacting on. I look at this too in a fact where it's it's the race to who kind of gets that connected device first or just that connected ecosystem. Is it your connected car? Is it your connected phone? It's really a stepping stone to creating a wider ecosystem for, for a company, whether it's to get the data on the transactions or ultimately having that banking relationship with the individual that signs up for it, I think is so critical. I just am amazed by how this works um, and how we're moving to a world where 
your phone can tell you that you're a mile from Starbucks and it can also order you a latte to be there when you arrive. And these all these sort of partnerships, I do think, are bringing us closer to that. I do. The one thing I do think, though, is that it feels almost like a step backwards. It feels something like feels like something Samsung has had to do, particularly for the US, because I think that my understanding of it is that contactless payments and mobile payments in its in its core markets are very very widely accepted. So introducing a piece of plastic might not necessarily have much impact there. But to me, this does sound like, and I and I, from as far as I can tell, they're only doing this in the US. A very strategic US decision, perhaps, to try and gain some market share there, um, because you know that the, the, their core markets they just, they just wouldn't need it. Um, as good as it is to have a partnership or otherwise, I think. And you, and you can't keep up with the neo banks unless you have a. Mess- metal card so and you can't have a metal card unless you have a physical card but um forgive my ignorance but when when they launched this card um obviously there was a big sort of uh controversy around uh neo banks in this country and how they were reporting to credit agencies or which credit agencies they were reporting to because they're with these digital wallets um and then sort of teaming up to develop this debit card will these debit cards actually enable these un or underbanked individuals to build up credit ratings because for me if you're bringing un, un or underbanked individuals into what you know you're proudly declaring that they now have a, a way to keep hold of their money it's about inviting them into the wider ecosystem of financial products and services so if they're not generating a credit rating that they can use to sort of open up a, a wealth of new possibilities then you're only halfway there really I think they are, aren't they? So having a look, having had a look at SoFi, which I've never heard of prior to this, um, you know, they have, it's not just the private, the, the, so it seems to be targeted to the younger audience, correct? This is, you know, for, for youngsters, this is their first stepping stone is what I've got from it all, um, where yes, they've got student loans, et cetera, but there's also personal loans and home loans. And so if they're offering those sorts of things, there has to be a credit, um, you know, history that's being built up. So, uh, you know, for me, I don't know whether I'm just super cynical, but rather than the, the card being the thing for me, it was like you're partnering up with these guys to go get them whilst they're young and now you've got them and now you're effectively a neobank and you've got the cash management piece and we're just gonna we're just gonna keep you going because now you don't need the you don't need the bricks and mortar bank to go to because we've we've got you on our phone. So oh, it's, it's anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. So SoFi did start out like that. It started out as a lender specifically to help um, students at very uh, good, well-respected US universities pay back their loans on the basis it figured they were less risky because they were all going to Ivy League universities. Um, it's spun out from that hugely and is now positioning itself as a, as a sort of an online financial management proposition to compete with um, the neobanks and also the likes of Robinhood who've come at this from another angle. You know, Robinhood started off with stock picking and is now trying to do the whole thing its own <laughs> steps into cash uh, cash accounts have been somewhat um hesitant and perhaps they've faced a few hurdles um but the point being that i think from sofi's perspective it's now actually trying to broaden its audience it's trying to target a much wider audience than it has been historically which is younger um from a credit perspective it's really interesting because it's a cash management account right it's not a credit account um which is a very different sort of product the other thing is of course sofi doesn't have a banking license so when you put your money with into a sofi cash management account it is split between six different banks which back sofi 
So I'm not quite sure with SoFi if you can choose which bank it goes to. Some of them uh, you can, some of them that do this because it means you can get a higher uh, savings rate on any deposits you hold there. As far as I can tell, SoFi doesn't do that. So that money is actually being held with one of six banks, which means it is um, insured under FDIC. Um, so that means the money is protected in the same way as it would be through a bank account. But SoFi doesn't actually have it. Um, and I wonder, uh, you know, in terms of a credit score rating, um, Oliver's point is very good. If you've got all those different players involved, I have no idea how you would use the spending on that account to build a credit score unless somebody had built an API into your account and could pull that data out and write a credit, and you know, a, a credit scoring algorithm off the back of that. Um Adam, you're looking either confused or no. I think I know. They, I know. Uh, <laughs> it it kind of depends. It's if they've got a um, what the relationship is like with uh, with the charter holder that sits underneath them. So they've got. I know they. I don't want to get too technical into this, but I know uh, Bank Corp sits at the back of them as the they've, issuer. Well, they've got six. Uh, but it, it six issuers or six. It can't be six issuers, surely. Well, anyway, wh- wherever the money sits. Um, for SoFi, this is a really this is quite an interesting one because they've got. I mean, they've obviously got you know the history of having uh, credit propositions. You know, as we've just mentioned, they've also now obviously teamed up from a, a transactional banking perspective to a degree of cash management perspective. But they've also recently bought Galileo, who is um, essentially a, an, a like a BAS uh, core banking platform. Um, and so this is going to test, I suppose, their credibility in the market to be able to. I don't know if this is actually based on the Galileo system, but you know, on Galileo is are startups like Chime and like Monzo and others in the states. So you know, this is kind of a, a test of their end-to-end capability and their kind of, I suppose, um, move up the chain, if you like, from being sort of a, a startup that's specifically focused on credit to, you know, an entity that can offer a full suite of banking services. Yeah, I mean, so so far had a bit of a rocky road, and their strategy has sort of wavered all over the place. Um, so it would be interesting to see what's behind all these moves, or whether there is sort of um, a lot of different strands that haven't quite come together yet for an overall plan. Um, right, interesting one to watch that I think. But uh, for now, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back shortly. We are truly in uncharted waters. Looking to us for guidance. Nothing is more important than building trust right now. This will be the new normal. How can I help? Hear that? That's the sound of change. Right now, business leaders are rethinking, reassessing, and repurposing business as usual to deal with this new crisis. It's a global conversation Salesforce is having called Leading Through Change. And it's all about businesses working together to achieve one simple goal, help. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you for everything that you're doing. Learn more at salesforce.com backslash leading through change. This episode of Fintech Insider is brought to you by MyTech. Combining the world's best forensic experts with the industry's most advanced technology, only MyTech delivers banking-grade identity verification with the highest possible assurance levels, massively reducing risk, fraud, and costs. Discover more at mytechsystems.com. This episode is also brought to you by Equinix. Equinix is the world's largest data center and co-location provider, enabling fastest application performance, lowest latency, and a digital ecosystem for financial services. Its platform of 200-plus data centers worldwide protects, connects, and empowers the mission-critical infrastructure for over 10,000 businesses. Find out more at equinix.com. Okay, now back to the news show where we're going to take a look at some other stories happening around the world, starting with MasterCard's massive financial inclusion pledge. 
Mastercard has expanded its worldwide commitment to financial inclusion by pledging to bring a total of 1 billion people and 50 million micro and small businesses into the digital economy by 2025. Driven by the COVID-19 crisis, the strategy will include a direct focus on providing 20 million women entrepreneurs with solutions that can help them grow their businesses. The new commitment is an extension of MasterCard's pledge in 2015 to bring 500 million excluded people into the financial system. To find out more about this from MasterCard themselves, we heard about we heard from Scott Abrahams, Senior Vice President at MasterCard. Let's hear from him now. Around 1.7 billion adults around the world lack access to the digital economy. MasterCard wants to change that. If we're going to recover from the current situation in any sort of long-term, sustainable way, we have to make sure that everyone is included. Getting people access to the digital economy is a critical part of that. Put simply, when people thrive, economies thrive. Five years ago, we committed to bring 500 million excluded individuals into the digital economy. We achieved that goal through more than 350 innovative programmes across 80 countries. But that isn't enough, especially now that a global pandemic has made the contrast of the digital divide even more stark. The only way we're going to achieve this is by building a more connected world where everyone has equal access to a better life. So we're doubling our original commitment, taking everything we've learned so far to include another 500 million people by 2025 for a total of 1 billion individuals. Alongside that, we're committing to help 50 million small and micro merchants with a digital focus on providing 25 million female entrepreneurs with solutions that can help them grow their businesses. Reaching the 1 billion goal will need a broad range of efforts, including ongoing work on government disbursement solutions, digitising the way private sector workers are paid, partnerships with mobile network operators, solutions for gig workers, scaling efforts with fintechs and developing solutions addressing needs of the financially vulnerable. We want to make the digital economy work for everyone, everywhere. Okay, so what are our thoughts on this story? Uh, Who wants to go first on this? Sarah. Sure. So I think financial inclusion is critical across all segments, um, and it's even more prevalent across the vulnerable population. But I don't believe there's just one solution to financial inclusion. I think digital apps and managing, helping people manage money easier is, is one solution. But I think what we've seen from the COVID-19 crisis, it brought to light the, ac- the need to access cash in the UK. So there's this whole kind of challenge slash conflict around a portion of the unbanked customers or the elderly population where retailers are saying they can't, they're only accepting electronic transactions, but these these individuals only have access to cash. So it further excludes a part of the population. So in my view, it needs to be a variety of solutions for us to really focus on getting, not leaving anybody behind. We've uh, actually done a a feasibility study uh, recently on a um, on a pretty much completely cash economy, um, where you know the schemes, the mastercards, and the visas just aren't there in country yet. And you realise that around the world, um, especially moving, I suppose more uh, more east, on just how many countries there are where you know sort of um, I suppose uh, uh, digital infrastructure, payments infrastructure, um, let alone something like cloud, but even, you know, sort of in-country infrastructure that can support these kind of networks ju- just isn't there. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, is, how well positioned a MasterCard to be able to do this? Well, I think they're fundamental. Like, I think having a scheme like this underpins, you know, uh, 
is what well, is a significant cog in the wheel put it that way to underpin a, a wider infrastructure play for many other partners um and it's generally the first uh, the first thing that i write on on any sort of feasibility study is you know is are the schemes there how easy is it for the schemes to get into that country because they'll bring that kind of network and the rules and the um and the partners with it to actually make a difference so you know for mastercard to say that they're doing this and they've rolled it out over 80 countries um is really impressive and i think is uh you know, is, is something to be applauded. It's obviously something as well that I was just reminded of the um, the last episode of, of this show that I hosted where we were talking about Visa connecting to M-Pesa. Um, and obviously M-Pesa operates um, in various countries where um, infrastructure is, is somewhat lacking. Obviously M-Pesa does a great job of, of boosting financial inclusion um, on its own. Uh, but it sounds like this is not just a, a MasterCard player as well. The other schemes are, are looking into how they can um, expand you know, from a cynical perspective, expand the number of people who are using, you know, their rails and make more money from them. Um, I mean, obviously, behind every philanthropic decision is a, is a business decision when you're this large. Um, it is. I mean, the, the, yeah, it is. I mean, well, I suppose, yeah, at the core of it, it is. Um, and there's a lot of, obviously, untapped potential if you're a numbers guy sitting in one of these companies. But on the flip side, I think that the benefit of having one of the schemes involved, one of the mature schemes involved is, 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 as I say, is, is completely fundamental. Um, so I think it's, it is swings and roundabouts. If it's win, 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 then then it's all for it. That I'm win, win, it. exactly. Do you guys have any insight on the, the 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 female piece of the puzzle in this? You know, just the the focus on trying to to enable you know more women. I mean, I would love to say that MasterCard has realized that if you exclude (laughs) 50% of the population, then you're excluding 50% of the business and also that businesses run by women, particularly micro businesses in developing parts of the world, generally do a lot better. Um, Women tend to be very, very pro at running those businesses. Do not know if that is true or whether putting my cynical hat back on again, saying you're going to target uh, female-led enterprises looks really good on a headline. Yeah. but if it works, if they actually are managing to help those women running those businesses, you know, build out those businesses, scale those businesses, um, and then, you know, those women can, can give back uh, to the community they're in, because a lot of the time that's what happens when you have female-led businesses, then again, it's win-win. Um, but I don't personally have any further insight on why MasterCard has done that particularly. Maybe it came out of the 500 million that they've already enabled that they needed to make a further stake in the sand. But it's a known fact that women who own and manage businesses have a unique set of challenges, especially getting access to capital and networks. So it is something that is important for all uh, gl- big global institutions. We at JP Morgan focus tremendously on giving back into the women's agenda and the c- helping communities and the customers we serve. So I, I do see that as a business principle that I could see MasterCard supporting. Yeah, and again, I think I think there's uh, significant cultural challenges to do that in some of the developing markets that they, in theory, would have to go into to make this this pledge a reality. So if they're going into those countries and stipulating that they're only going to sponsor X, Y, Z if you know a certain proportion of the businesses that sign up or the uh, or the entrepreneurs that sign up is are are female, then that's a significant weight that they carry to actually make that a reality. Well, um, let's let's hope they're successful because I think we've established that you know this is positive on all counts if they if they can do it and do it well. Um, right now we are going over to Australia where eighty six thousand four hundred has dropped mortgage rates um, and says it can complete approvals in just a few hours. 
So 86,400 is the first and only neobank in Australia to offer mortgages. Um, It's dropped its fixed rate loans, bringing the one and two year terms to an all time low of 2.24% per annum uh, for unoccupied principal and interest. Um, When it comes to assessing home loan applications, 86,400 has also reduced their minimum serviceability floor rate to 5.25% on new applications from 5.5%. Now, I had to look up what that was. I don't know if it's a specific Australian thing or if it's because I'm part of a generation who is never going to be able to afford a house. But for anybody who's in the same position as us, basically um, that, that serviceability floor rate is like a stress test. So when you have a variable rate on a mortgage, the bank assesses your ability to pay it back, not on the rate it is at when you borrow it, but on a percentage above that. Now, in Australia, it used to have to be 7%, according to the regulator, until last year. Um, and then they changed the rules and said, you know, the uh, lenders could be more flexible. Um, and as far as I can tell, this means that 86,400 has one of the, the lowest um, bands there. So 5.25% is lower than um, CBA, which has made a big song and dance about lowering its own. So the idea is it's easier to borrow money um, because that, that you're, the way you're assessed um, is, is, is more flexible. He's, uh, and then apparently they want to take a year of bank transactions rather than relying on payslips and utility bill receipts, apparently. So it's 12 months worth of bank transactions rather than, um, you know, how my question would just be how responsible is it to be able to do that that quickly? I'm just, just to finish the, the sort of introduction piece there. No, no, sorry. No, please jump in. But let me just give a little bit more context. Um, so They've also introduced a $2,000 cashback on eligible home loan applications between 4th of May and 30th of June this year. Um, so basically, just it, the, the, this it's clearly, not clearly, sorry, it looks like a way to get as many customers through the door as possible, as quickly as possible. They are one of the new um, providers in the market. As I've said many times before on this podcast, Australians are even more obsessed with property than the Brits. So like being able to get a mortgage is like a major, major life goal for almost all Australians. So mortgages are a huge product for the neobanks to get in and, 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 and do right. Um, on the other side of that, you know, new player on the market introduced really attractive rates, get lots of people through the door. This is a huge commitment and very much to your point, Hannah, how responsible is it? Um, so I think, I mean, you know. Yeah, they say they're only going to um, lend to full-time workers, not the self-employed. So there are, you know, there are constraints behind the big pizzazz around it. I mean, I'll say, um, so, so I think they, they introduced this in November. Uh, as in they introduced uh, mortgages full stop as a product in November. And it's a broker-led journey, which is the other thing uh, to, to bear in mind. So it means that a lot of the upfront work has already been done by the brokers. And the broker, in theory, therefore, has got all the um, requisite paperwork and details about the the applicant there and ready to submit. And there's probably a good portal, which is uh, sort of live in existence, which in, interacts with um, with 86400 in terms of, you know, a, all API'd up, et cetera. So I think there's... Um, I think there's probably uh, a little bit more to it in terms of how they're actually doing their mortgage journey and the nine steps that it takes in the UK to get a mortgage. In theory, you can reduce travels quite significantly just because there's a broker in play. Um, reminds me a little bit of, uh, you know, in the UK, we've got a fair few sort of online digital um, mortgage uh, lenders. It's probably the, I don't know if it's lenders or more. Um, from an application perspective, I'm thinking of Habito, who I think are going into lending, but has started with uh, sort of being an online marketplace for mortgages. Um, so we've sort of seen that before, but obviously um, this is this is relatively new to Australia. Any any more for any more on that one? No, 
Okay, we'll we'll leave it there. Um, <laughs> Fire, fair enough. The Australians. Killed that story. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I will I will close this out by saying that um, Australia has you know a growing number of neobanks. They are quite a long way behind the UK and actually the US. When you look at like the variety of services that are on offer, you know, as I said many times before, that's largely because the four big banks in Australia haven't had to deal with a lot of the problems that you know, particularly uh, regulation or up until now, recession, um, that the banks and parts of the, you know, Western Europe and then the US have had to deal with. So they are very much able to keep on top of their products and services. So their apps are, you know, far and away in advance of most of the apps you would have found from US or UK banks at the same stage. So the products and services they offer mean that there just hasn't been a need for a new market entrance. Um, this, this decision to come in uh, to to the, the the game and do it based on price. We've also seen from Zinja, which is um it's a, a current account based product. It's very similar to Monzo. In fact, some of the team are, are the same. Um, and Zinja basically drew uh, drew in as many customers as possible with a really high interest rate on savings. So um, I think my point there is that it tells you something about the Australian banking market that the the way that most of these new entrants have gone into it is is through attractive rates, whether that's on borrowing or saving. Um, Zinja we've seen recently had to pull back on that rate that it was offering uh, savers because the Australian uh, central bank had reduced overall rates like every other central bank in the world. Um, and so the question there is, I think it's interesting, the digital player is great, but how sustainable is a strategy based on price like this? And that is something that only time will tell. You've obviously seen Australia's real-time payments network is actually quite successful. They have Their scheme has over it got over a quarter of the market in two years. So they are advancing in, in some spaces, but absolutely there's still more that has to come from that. Yeah, it's a market that anybody who listens to this regularly knows I love. So I'm I'm not giving I'm not gonna stop looking at it anytime soon. You will you um, will see Sarah on a beach at some point. It will happen. If, if, I, <laughs> if I'm ever allowed to leave the UK yeah. again. <laughs> okay. Um we're going to move on now as we're getting to the end of the show, just to round up some of the other stories from the week that we didn't have time to cover. So there's so much happening this week, we can't cover it all, but these stories deserved a shout out. Adam, please begin. Yeah, what a, what a wonderful feature this is. So uh, the, the quick fire story round, it feels like have I got news for you a bit, but I'm going to do it. So um, first one, Finextra. Uh, COVID-19 scuppers the Commerce Bank plan to sell MBank. Uh, so Germany's Commerce Bank uh, is abandoning its plan to sell off their majority stake in Polish unit MBank, um, basically because the COVID-19 crisis will prevent Commerce Bank from getting an acceptable return. So MBank's the fourth largest financial institution in Poland, measured by total assets, present in Slovenia, Czech Republic and Poland. It's got about 5.3 million retail customers, about 1.3 million online mobile customers. Um, Commerce Bank signalled its intention in September to sell almost a 70% stake um, as part of a wide-ranging overhaul after a merger with DB uh, fell through. But while the M-Bank sale was initially designed to reduce risk-weighted assets and to release capital, Commerce Bank says it's achieved uh, significant and sufficient flexibility with regards to its common equity tier run ratio. And if you listen to this podcast two weeks ago, you'll know that I love a common equity tier run ratio. <laughs> 
Moving on from Adam's niche interests, um, our next story today also comes from FinExtra, and it's that fintech revenues will hit $500 billion by 2030, according to UBS. So the global fintech industry is at an inflection point, with revenues set to grow from $150 billion in 2018 to $500 billion in 2030, according to UBS. Crucial to this growth are Millennials, which I'm putting, you know, air quotes around, um, who apparently account for 27% of the world's population and are set to hold $24 trillion in private wealth. No definition of millennial is given. Um, among the hype technologies is blockchain, which UBS expects to generate annual economic value worth $300 billion and $400 billion by 2027 across six major industries led by financial services. Another major area of fintech growth will be e-wallet payments led by APAC with a predicted 66% penetration by 2022, compared to just 33% in North America and 24% in EMEA. Mm. But I'm going to reduce the uh, the positivity uh, and, and end on a low. Uh, CB Insights have just reported the state of fintech Q120 report, uh, which you could imagine is dominated by the COVID outbreak, which has had a significant impact on fintech financing, resulting in the worst Q1 since 2016 for fintech deals and the worst Q1 for funding since 2017. In Q1 2020, VC-backed fintech funded dropped uh, funding, sorry, dropped to 6.1 billion across 404 deals. Uh, with the view that there are forecasts of a recession, investors have pulled back on early stage bets to focus on fortifying portfolios. So in Q1 2020, uh, early stage, that sees and Series A fintech startups saw 228 deals, which is a 13 quarter low, and a 1.1 billion in funding, which is a nine quarter low. Uh, Europe was the only major region to see an increase in funding driven by four mega rounds, that's 100 million plus, including Revolut's recent 500 million Series D, which I think we covered uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, investors uh, start to see some liquidity amid a fintech M&A spree in 2020. So this is kind of, um, I suppose, the reverse <coughs> of that. And these are some of the deals that have already been done, I guess, before COVID hit. So obviously, Plaid were acquired by Visa. That was for about 5.3 bill, um, bill billion. Uh, Intuit acquired credit card. Uh, SoFi, as we've just mentioned before, acquired Galileo for 1.2 billion, and Lending Club acquired Radius Bank for 185 million, which I think generally was for their license, um, but that's still pending closure. Yes, I have many thoughts about that data. If you want to hear my take on it, then please do let me know because I'm I don't think it's as clear cut as that. But anyway, um, moving us on to the more light-hearted section of the show. Uh, U.S. government pays translator to decipher name of shuttered RBS banking app Bo. The U.S. Patent and Trademark Office wrote a letter to RBS last week asking it to explain the meaning of Bo because it classes the brand as being written in a foreign language. It is. Uh, a professional translator was asked to investigate as part of RBS's continued attempt to trademark the brand in America, despite the fact that the brand is shuttered in the UK. Um, the translator concluded that the name of the digital banking app is likely to mean cow in Scottish Gaelic, but could also be translated as sea cow, manatee or ladybird in Irish Gaelic. Um, but of course, we couldn't finish without bringing you one of the silliest stories of the week as our and finally. Monkey business. Primate goes bananas at ATM. Oh my goodness, the fun that journalist must have had with that headline. Um, humans may be avoiding cash during the COVID-19 pandemic, but one of our primate cousins was less discerning this week as it ripped up an ATM. Police in New Delhi, who were called to the State Bank of India branch on Wednesday, assumed that they had found the aftermath of a botched robbery when they saw an ATM with its front panel pulled off. 
but when they reviewed video footage from the scene, they discovered that the damage had been done by a monkey. The culprit, believed to be a Reese's macaque, can be seen sneaking out of the building, but does not appear to have taken any cash. Uh, last Foolish. Week, last week, we had a chicken terrorizing Louisiana residents at an ATM, and now we have monkeys vandalizing them. Um, clearly, we need to go cashless for our own safety, apparently. Or, or you know, as we give up the cash, the animals are, are reclaiming it for their own. Um, any thoughts on this? Utterly brilliant. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> I was going to say, I like that because there's less people on the streets. The animals actually get to get out more. So reclaiming their land <laughs> versus the, taking our cash. It'll be sea cows and manatees next. You never know. But only the, only the Gaelic ones. <laughs> it's just planet, planet of the Apes come to life, really, isn't it? I don't, I don't even know how big that particular monkey breed is. I'm, I'm not an expert. So I, I don't, in my head, it sort of feels like it would have to be some kind of gorilla to rip an ATM off the wall. But actually, having said that, if you've ever been to a safari park and you drive through the monkey enclosure and they tell you not to stop because they are basically good at taking things apart, um, it actually makes a lot of sense now I think about it. Right. We will leave it there for this week and wrap up this week's new show. Thank you so much to all of our guests. Where can people find out more about you, Hannah? Uh, at futurely.com. That's F-U-T-R-L-I.com. Please come and see us there. All small businesses. Thank you. Wonderful. Sarah, how about you? You can find me on LinkedIn. And Oliver? Head to buymiles.co.uk and, uh, yeah, just discover the future of car insurance there. Bold claim. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think after I lockdown, it. I think it's fair. I love it. I love it. Um, Adam. Uh, Adam D8 on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn and 11fs.com. And you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kajansky. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps to make it better and helps others to find the show. Speaking of which, if you know someone who loves fintech who isn't listening to Fintech Insider, please pass the podcast along and tell them about the show. If you have any suggestions or feedback, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider or email podcasts at 11FS.com. Thanks so much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.